I'm Kate Parker. This is Warming Signs, a podcast with the sound minds of science. It's not just the impossible whopper. Vegan options are popping up everywhere. A recent UN climate report even urged a meat-free diet in response to skyrocketing CO2 levels. But what if you just can't kick chicken? I recently spoke to Dr. Jason Roundtree of Michigan State University. He's an agriculture expert who specializes in resilience in farming. So will going vegan save the planet? Well, it's not that black and white. Jason, thank you so much for joining me on Warming Signs. Hi, Kate. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm going to go straight to the big question that so many people are talking about. Is... I'm excited. I hope I can handle it. Okay. I think you can. Let's go. Yeah. Is right. being vegan the answer to climate change? Wow. So that's just, yeah, you're getting right down to it, aren't you? I warned you. Um, first of all, um, I always want to say that I would never put a person at fault on their, on their dietary decisions, right? I mean, I want to honor their thought processes and, and what they like to eat and, and whether it's just a physical or spiritual or, or whatever, right? With that said, you know, it, I've done quite a bit of work in the United States on this, on that exact question. And, you know, we actually went back just, uh, there's a paper that came out a few years ago published in Nature that said, hey, in order to help like address climate change in agriculture, we need to get rid of the world's cows or half the world's cows, right? And so a couple things, first of all, to think about. First, it's very geographically contextual that what happens in the United States is completely different than what might happen in India. And, so when we talk about these things, there's these huge global dynamics. It's highly complex. But to answer your question, what we did in the United States is I, we did did some modeling and, and wrote a paper on this and said, hey, what happens if we get rid of half the cows? Okay, let's let's just get rid of half the cows. I know you said vegan versus non, but I'm kind of a beef guy. And and the point I want to make is that it, very little change in the overall emission footprint in the United States happened, maybe a couple percent, right? And that actually data has been corroborated by a, another paper written in, in PNAS, which is a um, really high-end journal that also indicated if we got rid of all animal agriculture in the U.S., we'd actually only probably curb our emissions by three, three and a half percent. But likewise, we would have to use more fertilizers to grow more plant-based foods. We'd use more herbicides. We use more insecticides. And we probably have more challenges with uh, meeting nutrient requirements, especially micronutrients. Hmm. So in my view, I would say that if you are really hardcore about making decisions to improve the environment, don't reproduce, don't fly, and don't drive. Okay, but veganism is not on that list. For, for the data that I see, it isn't. And um, it's a very complex, the science is complex, but, but that's, that's my take. Is there a way that we can responsibly eat meat as Americans or, you know, as a global global community? Oh, great question. So, uh, you know, responsibility is a probably a very it means different things to different people. Right. But I, I think today that that and, and, and listen, we'll talk about it. I know I, I'm a regenerative ag guy. I mean, I look at ways to to really try to, to, to farm in nature's image and improve the land. Uh, improve livelihoods. But but today, I think even today, you can eat meat responsibly, right? I, I mean, I, I look again at, at you know, what, what we're able to do in the United States. Actually, like only 9% of the United States emissions, this is EPA data, it's, it's Obama EPA data, indicate that I think our overall agriculture footprint is like 9%, right? 
Of that, 60% is animals. So that's like five and a half. Of that, I believe another 60%, around three, three and a half are, are beef cattle or, or, or ruminants because of methane, right? Mm-hmm. And so to me, I mean, just thinking about this, that 9% of a country's footprint to feed itself and a global population isn't a bad deal, right? I, I do, without question, think agriculture can improve. We can improve from a standpoint of erosion. I mean, you see the challenges we have with dead zones, hyper or, or eutrophic, you know, um, water bodies where we have all these algal blooms and it's snuffing out oxygen and biodiversity. Uh, there's ways that we have the tools in our toolbox to eliminate a lot of these problems. But at the end of the day, I think you can eat meat responsibly uh, today. And and I, I think, though, that, again, we can do a lot of things to improve it. But but I feel that the, the, the data says that and, and that, again, that I often believe that meat meat tends to get get to be a kind of a common common pinata in, in the nutrition you know pinata. in the nutrition environmental world today okay you know so what is the way that we can eat that responsibility responsibly does it have to do with regenerative farming is it the way that we produce the meat what is what does that look like so for everybody it's different again i mean it may be cost driven it may be environmental driven it may be animal welfare driven I I see. So where I see this deal headed, okay, is that, you know, for this very long time, we've had a government policy that has basically put farmers in these little boxes on how they can farm. And Mm -hmm. typically those mandates through government policy have um, really eliminated a lot of tools in a toolbox such that it, it, you know, just for instance, risk management insurance, right? A cover crop is something we plant. Uh, when there's nothing else growing in a cropping system and it covers ground, we can add a bunch of different plants. It improves biodiversity, birds, insects, right? And for many, many years, risk management insurance through the government has disallowed those practices. Why? And so because there's something green growing on the farm and if there's something green growing on the farm, how in the world can you have a crop disaster or a crop failure? Hmm. And now like our Senator Debbie Stabenow here in Michigan and others have worked with this new farm bill to, to, to try to get things into a better light. But, but there's certain tools in our toolbox agriculturally that can dramatically lower our footprint. And I think that's what you're after, right? How do we yeah. do this better? First of all, I think it's really important to understand that we, we need to minimize land use change, which in George W. Bush's administration, we, we provided, the government provided massive incentives for ethanol production, corn-based ethanol production, which therefore triggered massive amounts of tillage and degradation of our grasslands all through the middle part of of uh, the United States, the Great Plains, right? And data suggests that every time we plow acres under, we see massive amounts of carbon emissions. In fact, it can be 10 tons of carbon in, in a decade. And that's massive wow. amounts. And so first thing, Let's protect our land. Let's not more fires, no more fires. Let's not, you know, continue to to plow up land, especially, you know, for things like ethanol or high fructose corn syrup. Okay, so that's step one. Step two, I think, is we we have technologies that when we till in agriculture, which is, you know, you think about rototilling a garden or tilling, basically it chews up all the carbon that's in the soil. Mm. And those um, those things, the emissions, the CO2 goes up. Uh, we have more sedimentation that gets into water bodies and ends up into the Gulf of Mexico or into Lake Erie, That all those sediments. So we know by using no-till, which is a way that we can plant 
and actually till seeds in without having to till has a massive improvement on uh, improving soil, keeping soil where it should be and lowering emissions. It also then the greater biodiversity we get in that system, meaning more different crop rotations, putting animals back in our crops, it dramatically lowers the herbicides, pesticides, and, and, and fertilizers we need. One of the greatest footprints in animal agriculture, agriculture as a whole, is nitrous oxide, which is N2O, has uh, it's 300 times more potent from a heat trapping uh, perspective than CO2, 300 times more. And basically, when we put out a lot of fertilizer, we see these big N2O plumes go up in the atmosphere. So that biodiversity is key. And that what that does then is it dis, it, it minimizes the amount of inputs we need, and it, it lowers an already in the United States a pretty solid footprint into something better. I'm talking a lot, so I don't know if you have any other questions well, or maybe something yeah, like that. No, I, I'm 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 listening a lot, so I'm wrapping my brain around this. What you're saying is that if we use this acreage for and we don't till it, but instead have natural cover on it, that we are actually reducing carbon emissions are we capturing carbon carbon at that point we can very much so and i mean there has been data that has um you know we can use uh different methodologies of measuring greenhouse gas emissions but re- recently just in a in a, a a carbon a carbon and land report that came out we use these eddy covariate flux towers which are these towers that are kind of like look like a weather station you guys might be familiar with that can measure emissions that are going up and down and they can close the energy loop, so to speak. And we can look at the fluxes of CO2 going up and down. And generally in covered grassland scenarios, those areas are sinks, meaning they are sucking down more carbon that is going up in hmm. areas that, that are, have routinely been plowed or these areas that have been plowed under, guess what? Considerably more carbon going up in the atmosphere than being stored. And so our work has also suggested that, for instance, I've, I've been measuring carbon in our grazing systems for the last, oh, goodness, probably eight or nine years. And we actually have found that through using proper management of grazing livestock, and I can talk about that, um, we're actually seeing more carbon being stored below ground. And it's absolutely off, offsetting that methane that you hear about that's so harmful from cattle that, that, we are, that we're actually seeing, a, you know, we're basically it's a natural cycle. And, and we're, we're building more carbon than we're emitting in this system. And I, and I work with others that are doing the same thing. So, okay, you're saying that we, you actually, there's a, a way of grazing livestock that can carbon capture and offset yeah. the methane. I want to talk about methane in just a minute, but what does that look like? Does it mean um, that we're not seeing these huge livestock productions that, you know, are putting out a ton of product? Is it a smaller operation? Um, is it more expensive for people to make and then therefore buy? So let's first of all, a little, a, a, a quick quip, if I can say two Q words in a row, it's not the cow, it's the how, all right? Okay. It isn't the animal, it's the management. So like picture, you know, picture the old Kevin Costner movie, right? With all the bison migrating through the Great Plains, okay? Those scenarios where you think about that, think about the the massive migration of the wildebeest or the caribou. So see, that's been happening for a very long time. Those types of relationships between ruminants and grasslands. So what, what do they do? What is a ruminant? Right, well, they, 
A ruminant is a great question. It is the opposite of a non-ruminant, Kate. But oh. even more specifically, even more specifically, it is a animal that has this huge, massive, four-compartmentalized stomach. And it's got all these microbes that are in there, okay? So it's this massive fermentation vat. So if you're sitting at a standard desk listening to this at your job, it's basically the size of a standard desk, okay? Oh, wow. And store a bunch of stuff. And so there's microbes in there. And those microbes are breaking down grass and cellulose, which are fiber molecules that your and my stomach can't. And that's a really key component because cattle and ruminants can digest things that we can't. And they can not only provide ecosystem services, but they can provide meat, milk, leather, other byproducts. So that's a ruminant, right? Uh, sheep, goats, cattle, bison, guinea pigs, you know, others. Okay. So, so uh, you, I, you were saying, I'm sorry, I, I, I had to understand what that word meant. Oh. You're using big words on me. So you're saying these ruminants, these this livestock oh. has essentially grazed for as long as we have record on earth. Correct. It's been a long time. You know, obviously, I mean, let's just look at it in a 10,000 year window. Okay. Like glacial retreat. All right. What I want to say then is that if you think about the Great Plains, hypothetically, okay, that there was massive amounts of soil built in the Great Plains through this process of animals coming in, they eat grass, they stomp the heck out of it. They poop, they pee. Those seed heads on the grasses are now being stomped back in the ground. And there's, think of millions of bison in a group laying waste to these areas, okay? Then they migrate, and guess what? They may not come back for a year or two years. So they, there's this long recovery period where mm. all different plants in this trophic cascade of biodiversity and grasslands have adequate time to fully recover and be restored. And so what happens then is that that process, think about those plants, that litter layer. Like you see all those plants, now they're trampled. They're on top of the ground. It's a mulch, like in your garden or in your flower bed. And that mulch is slowly incorporated in the soil. And over very long periods of time, that process builds and the soil expands, all right? And it's binding carbon. Um, it's There's very labile carbon that's moving and flexing quickly, but there's also permanent carbon being stored. And so that that process is what built the breadbasket of the United States, okay? and And so because of that, you know, and thinking about that, we're never going to see that again, I don't think, unfortunately, unless, mm. you know, I don't know. I don't want to go there. Um, Africa, same way. If you think about all the migrating animals through Africa and we can micro, we can use that natural, that natural symbiotic example and manage on a micro level similarly. And we call it adaptive multipatic grazing. It's also called holistic plan grazing. But the point then is that in a smaller scale, even on my 10 acres at home that I, I, I micro farm with my daughter, we can graze animals, do the same thing, trample it, stomp it, do whatever, and then get out of there and allow it to fully recover. And we go to the next spot and the next spot and the next spot. And we have planned moves to manage the livestock that way. And we have a purpose we want to accomplish. And by doing that, we see those the, the water, the, the keys like water infiltration dramatically improves because – for every like 1% of organic matter or carbon I increase in the soil, I can get like another 40 to 50,000 gallons of water holding capacity. Oh, like wow. That's, I've so, never heard that. That's incredible stat. Yeah. So the more carbon yeah, we have massive. in our soil 
and in our plants, the more water that it can absorb and hold. Yes, ma'am. Let's pause here because there are some experts who have a big beef with meat eaters. Dr. Joseph Poor is an agriculture expert at Oxford University. He sat down with a young climate activist to make the case for going vegan. All land that you convert to farmland, with some very few exceptions, reduces biodiversity. It takes habitat away from other species that could be using that land. So no matter how well you do it, it's almost always going to have an impact. There are some exceptions on biodiversity. Secondly, cows create a lot of methane and feeding them grass is basically equivalent to converting coal, burning coal for, to create energy. So it's this, you know, feeding cows and grass is a very, very, very powerful way to create emissions. So while it might be grass fed, and you know, maybe it's got some benefits in terms of how the product tastes or maybe how the product appears, it's not an environmental solution. So is going vegetarian or reducing your meat consumption, is that a good thing for helping like, the planet? Yeah, without doubt, it is a good thing for helping the planet. But I think some of the things that do matter is half of our beef production is comes from dairy cows. Mm-hmm. So the beef that, you know, in the, the surplus, as they're called in the industry, surplus cows, the male cows that you, you know, you can't use to produce milk are sent to slaughter. The mm-hmm. dairy cows are sent to slaughter as well. And in fact, half of the world's beef production comes from the dairy industry. Milk and dairy are also very environmentally impactful. We looked at data from 40,000 farms in basically every country in the world. And what we wanted to understand was there such thing as sustainable meat and dairy? Is it possible to produce animal products with lower impacts than vegetable proteins? Even the lowest impact animal products are typically creating more emissions and using more land than vegetable proteins. Mm-hmm. And often, here's an example of cow's milk and soy milk, even the least sustainable soy milk, which is right up here, is still better for the planet than the most sustainable cow's milk. Mm-hmm. So that's a really important result. It says that it's always gonna be better to change your diet. By 2050, we're forecast to be consuming 1.3 trillion liters of dairy per year and about 500 billion kilograms of meat. And that's a 60% increase on today. And with that's gonna come increasing burdens on the environment, but also increasing impacts on all the animals and the, you know, the industry that's producing them. And all this demand that's coming on is largely coming from intensive animal production. And that is a huge challenge <coughs> for our society. And from, from an animal welfare, animal suffering perspective, it's incredibly important that we do not let this happen, that we, you know, we stop this dramatic transformation of the environment and our treatment of other species driven by our taste preference, largely for animal products. How many more years do we have till it gets that high, if like it does? It's forecast to increase by 60% our demand for meat and dairy by 2050. In the next 50 years, we're going to have to produce more food than we've produced in the entire history of humanity. So what will happen if we don't change our diets? Well, if we don't change our diets, agriculture is going to become an increasingly large share of our greenhouse gas emissions. So we address all these other sectors, we don't address agriculture. It could be by in 20, 30 years time, instead of a quarter of our emissions like it is now, it could be 50%, 60%. So that's one thing. We can't, we just leave it out of the equation and it is the main driver of climate change. Secondly, we're going to keep 
seeing that rapid loss of tropical forest. You know, we've lost an area in the last 15 years the size of the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Spain, and Portugal combined, which is a massive area of random tropical forest that we've lost. And we're going to keep seeing that loss if we don't address our diets. So what would you say to people that want to protect the planet? I would say start with the thing in your life that is easy to change and is incredibly powerful for the environment, and that is your diet. Certainly something to chew on before you bite into your next burger. Now let's get back to my chat with Dr. Roundtree. I hear you saying, okay, we have a way we can responsibly raise livestock that benefits us, not just with carbon capture, creating carbon sinks, but also potentially with flooding and just in general sediment runoff, et cetera. This all sounds wonderful, but what does it translate into our pocketbooks at the grocery store? Oh, goodness. Let's first of all be real, okay? We are so spoiled rotten in this country to have such a small amount of our budget go to food every month, right? I mean, we, you know, I've worked in Africa, right? You know, such a huge majority of, of people living in Africa, their income goes to food. Where here, I don't know what the number is, but it's like, what, is it 10% or less? I can't remember. So this is, this is my take on it, all right? What is it going to cost at the grocery store? If we incentivize the right things, I don't think there'll be huge changes, honestly. But I'm not like a big... I don't have much hope in our government incentivizing all of a sudden and things are going to change. So no offense to y'all in DC, but, but the point being is that I think what's going to happen is that our corporate entities are going to be the first to push to get this done because there's some super duper smart younger folks that are very much more in tune to things that are happening in terms of environmental degradation and agriculture. And I work with them. I work with folks at McDonald's and General Mills at Tyson and, and others. And I think what's going to first happen is that they're going to say, we want our food grown this way, and you guys need to figure it out. And there are going to be people that figure it out. McDonald's did it with gestation crates for sows and battery cages for their layers. They said, we don't want to see the meat uh, that we buy coming from systems that do this anymore. And they said, therefore, we're not buying your meat anymore or your eggs really? anymore. People changed overnight. People changed huh. overnight. So I think, I think what can happen is these industries will say the, these are the things that we want to see happen. The crazy thing is it's lower cost. So it costs the farmer less actually to farm this way. So I don't know if you're going to see a huge change in how things are done. The problem is today's farm, Kate, the average farmer today is minus $1.3 million. They're $1.3 million oh, in the I hole. Know. And so – the, and that's why farmers can't make good decisions because they're just like day to day trying to, to make decisions to feed their families. And um, but but I'm, I'm I'm meandering. But the point being is that I don't think actually I don't, I just don't know how much more it's going to change. I will also say that okay, let's say you've got the best organic grass fed beef out there, and you want to buy this cut of steak that's sixteen dollars a pound. You weigh that steak and you weigh your Starbucks latte, and that Starbucks latte is worth is is more expensive on a weight basis than that that really nice, beautiful grass fed ribeye. Okay, mm. and you weigh that bag of potato chips, all right, or those other types of things, and you put it on a price per pound basis, and it's a heck of a lot closer than what we might think already. It's just how we're used to spending our dollars. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We don't really consider that. You look at a steak and you're like, oh, gosh, this is so expensive. But 
in reality, whenever you look at the nutrients that you're getting from it, I feel like it's a lot more than, you know, yeah. when you're paying six bucks for a bag of potato chips. Right, right. So, and, and so I have to. What do you value? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, so that's it's a kind big. of almost the consumer at this point that it needs to, you know, drive the market for the corporations and say, hey, this is what's what we're going to buy and cause change with the farmers. Now, what about this question of methane? Because I'm sure everybody listening to this is like, what about the methane? It's a much more powerful greenhouse gas. We know that cows produce this gas that is full of methane. Uh, people right. like to people like to use it. A lot of climate change denialism comes from the sense of like, yeah, well, what about the cow burps? You're not fixing that. Yeah. Didn't right. I, and didn't I just hear something about a pink seaweed that has been developed to potentially negate there is yeah the production they're, they're, of they're all they're, they're these they are these uh, there are additives out there that can't have the opportunity to, to, to dramatically potentially I'll say that lower with uh, methane emissions um, there is work being done uh, I, I know like some work out of UC Davis actually that's being done working on these things so here's my take on it all right Again, we've had these ruminants around for a long time. And what happens is, is methane is a, is a carbon and four hydrogens. So picture a C, and then you've got four H's around it. That's what that molecule is, okay? That is the byproduct of that fermentation that we talked about. That's the byproduct, and it's 98% going out the front end and like 2% out the back end, okay? <laughs> and dude, by the way, like... I, I'm sitting here just being a good pilgrim working one day and my phone and my email go off and it, it, it was the new green deal, you know, the new green yeah. deal, like kind of bullet points and like, and then one of the staffers said, Oh, well, we're not going after cow farts yet, but it's going to happen or something like that. <laughs> and, and I never realized that, that this cow fart statement would like ruin my world for two weeks. Oh, I'm no. having to talk to media or phone calls and it's, it's such Unfortunately, it's kind of this juvenile simplification of a very complex issue. And you're like, actually, God bless the person that said it. It's cow burps. If we're gonna, right? And <laughs> let's get down to it. It gives me job security, so I'm okay <laughs> with it. You know, but um, but the but the thing is, right? Is that look, we we've got we've got this being eructated. Okay, so CH4 is broken down by hydroxyls, which are OHs, right? An O and H, an oxygen and a hydrogen is breaking down a carbon with four hydrogen molecules, and it's being broken down into water and carbon dioxide. And for a very long time, that CO2 and that methane's broke down atmospherically is what's being absorbed by the plants and trees for photosynthesis, mm. right? It's that, that natural biogenic carbon cycle. And oh, there's water vapor being given up also that can help with more localized rain and more natural water cycles, okay? And so, that, again, has been going on for a long time. It's biogenic. In fact, the International Panel of Climate Change even says we should treat biogenic methane much different from non-biogenic, which is typically a uh, methane is the source from natural gas, uh, right. from, from fertilizer fracking. production, yeah. those things, right? So, again, this has been going on for a long time. We also know that there is as many ruminants in the United States pre-settlement as there are today. The, the estimates are close. Oh, really? So going on Because it feels like I, I see things, people saying, hey, we have more of these, you know, large livestock than we've ever had. 
But you're saying that there's in the United States. In the yeah, United in States, America. we have a lot more, or a lot, or yeah, it, no, we used it, to have a lot more that used to graze. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And there could be some debates on that piece, right? Like, okay, well, where is the cow? And 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 you know, they're in a feedlot or in a in a confined confinement scenario versus being out in a field, you know, bucolic pastures or whatever. Um, but but the point then is that look, if if and then the methane actually cow numbers have gone down in the U.S. All right, beef consumption's gone down. Methane's gone up since 2011. Hmm. It's gone up literally since 2011. All right. That's so suspicious. the point is, that one, the increasing aspects of methane in the atmosphere aren't aren't the cattle. It's coming from other sources. All right. And I often think that for one reason or another, the cattle get blamed for that. And and so it's complex. I, I think it's also important that, you know, 40% of the globe's terrestrial lands are grassland systems, 40%. And a billion people in developing countries depend on those livestock for their livelihoods. And so we have these huge global discussions on we need to get rid of beef or we need to lower beef consumption globally by 90%. I mean, to me, those are, it's all fun and not fun. It's, 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 we can make these claims and say that stuff, but pragmatically, how in the hell are anybody going to do it? You know, how, how are you going to say, oh, well, you know, all, you know, the, the, the thousands and thousands of ranchers in this nation that are doing their best to take care of landscapes up. Yeah, we're you need to go farm black beans or something. Okay, I mean, I I don't get it, dude. I'm just trying to be pragmatic about it. Again, I think there's considerably other areas that we can more aptly address um, these challenges. Now, are there overgrazing and these problems? Yeah, and and we need to work on that. But I'm just trying to offer a level of pragmatism to this, I guess. Okay, so here is what I'm getting from all this to kind of see if I'm on the right track, if I've gotten the right message, is that a lot of this has to do with land use. And if we are properly using our land and have the proper amount of vegetation on it, and we are not tilling and we're treating that land respectfully and naturally pretty much, that that actually is going to capture a lot more of those greenhouse gases naturally. And and, and lower the exogenous ones as well that are coming from inputs. Yeah. Sounds like a no-brainer thing, doesn't it? It does. And um, that that it's 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 how you know. And again, I never want to blame a farmer for an action because they're always they're, they're like this political pawn. I mean, look at the trade wars right now, you know, and and the issues with soybeans and pork and beef. Yeah. And so, but but you're right. At the end of the day, it goes back to that. And guess what? We're not. I mean, I love. Look, I do local regional food work. I love empowering small scale farmers farmers of color. I mean, that, that is important to me, but the thing is, is these things that we know can work, can be done at massive scale. Okay. And, and, you know, one of the other things I think is important, and I always go back to this Wendell Berry quote, Wendell Berry is this pastoralist writer. I love him. And he said that, Hey, we had the solution, which if you go back, we had animals in our cropping systems, grazing animals in our cropping systems. He said, we took the solution and we split it into two problems. And I think that's important that we put cattle over in here and then we put our cropping systems over here. We pulled out all the fences. And I think, again, because there's a symbiotic relationship in the animals putting nutrients back out onto those fields, improving the biodiversity. I mean, did you see the deal? It's about 
the North America has, has lost like 25% of their, their bird populations. It's it, many of those areas, Kate, are in our grasslands. Hmm. All right. Like, for instance, Audubon now has working towards a, a grasslands regenerative grazing program to help work with ranchers to encourage behaviors that that allow and, and reestablish a lot of these grassland bird species we've lost. One of the main causes potentially of that is the fact that we have much less insects because of using certain insecticides, okay? And, and so I don't want to like go down that road a whole lot, but the point is, is we have these, we know what's going on. We have the tools to rectify it. It can be done big. You know, it's, it's, it, it, the corporation I think can drive it. And, and so that, that's my hope anyway. Okay. Well, I like ending on hope. So I think that's a perfect place for, cool. yes, Jason, thank you so much for this incredible lesson on ways that we can responsibly keep meat in our diets if we so choose. Hey, if you like this podcast, could you rate it? Maybe you could subscribe just for funsies, right? We would love to have you a part of the Warming Signs fam. And also, I want to talk to you. So tweet at me, at WeatherKate. That's at WeatherKAIT, because I want this to be a dialogue. Come and tell me your ideas. Tell me if you loved or you hated this episode. All opinions are welcome. And trust me, I do get them all. A giant thank you to our production staff for always making this happen, getting it out of my brain and into yours every other Tuesday. Until next time.